Welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, episode number 67, where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can find us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can also pick us up on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, tune in. There was a new one, too. iHeartRadio, right? iHeartRadio, yeah. And uh, over Secret Shield Radio Broadcast. This week, we got a book. Uh, we are done, obviously, with the death of Superman, so we're switching into a more regular gear here. We got a book selected by the prodigious and prolific comic book reader, <laughs> Joe Crawford, who has a... I wasn't sure what to uh, advertise, but uh, yeah, for the non-discerning mm-hmm. reader, it's at flairjoe.tumblr.com, and there he does show... Uh, all the comics that he reads on a daily basis, and folks, it's a lot of comics. There'd be a lot. Yeah, there's a lot and a big variety, too. So what book did he pick for us today? He wanted us to read New Defenders, issue 126, from December 1983. Uh, this book was written by J.M. DeMatteis, uh, has a guest artist, that's uh, Alan Copperberg, letterer Janice Chang, colorist Paul Secton, editor Carl Potts, and presiding over the entire affair, Jim Shooter. All right. Came with a cover price of 75 centavos. Yeah. And, uh, yes. <laughs> and uh, as as per our normal, uh, you know, format, we're going to discuss the creators first. Starting with John Mark DiMatteis. He was born December 15th, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, his earliest aspirations were to be a rock musician and comic book artist. Hey. I be, yeah, that's a, quite a uh, varied uh, yeah, really. artistic life, yes. <laughs> now, he began playing in bands starting in the sixth grade, generally in the role of lead singer or songwriter or rhythm guitarist. Uh, he started drawing also at an early age and was accepted into the School of the Visual Arts. He recalled... For some reason, I think it was financial, I ended up not going. Somewhere after that, after that, what little drawing skills I had began to atrophy. Uh, then he turned from drawing to writing. J.M.D. Mateus worked as a music journalist for a time, beginning while still in school. But after writing a negative review of Grateful Dead's 1980 album, Go to Heaven, which was published in Rolling Stone, number 323, August 7th, 1980, Mateus ended his career as a music critic. He explained, Grateful Dead fans are like hardcore comic book fans, you know. And I know that when I sit down to write a review that I'm just some schmuck sitting down at a typewriter with an opinion. But then it's in print in something like Rolling Stone. I got all these letters, which I saved from all these hardcore Grateful Dead fans, wounded. I said, if I'm going to review it all, I'm not going to write negative reviews anymore. So he stopped. Dimitrius got his start in comic books at DC Comics in the late 1970s. His first accepted story was The Lady Killer Craves Blood, but it would not be published until years later in House of Mystery number 282, July 1980, cover date, drawn by Jerry Talayok. His first published story for the company was The Blood Boat in Weird War Tales number 70, December 1978, penciled by Dick Ayers. He would be a major contributor to DC's line of horror comics, uh, notably with the creation of the Creature Commandos. That was in Weird Weird World, uh, but, 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 uh, Weird War Tales, even uh, issue ninety three <laughs> from November nineteen eighty, and in I dot 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 Vampire in House of Mystery number two ninety. That was March nineteen eighty one cover date. Uh, JM briefly wrote the Aquaman feature in Adventure Comics as issues four seventy five through four seventy eight, September through December nineteen eighty as well. Uh, Demetrius and artist Brian Bolin 
Poland produced a special story titled Falling Down to Heaven in Madame Xanadu's Special Number 1. It's a 1981 cover. Uh, this was DC's first attempt at marketing comics specifically to the direct market of fans and collectors. By you know, you know, nothing gets us more excited than yeah. a bunch of inventory stories left unpublished uh, due to uh, books having been prematurely canceled. Yeah, if this is the way you're appealing to a direct market, maybe you should rethink the uh, what what the mm-hmm. direct market is. Maybe they didn't know what it would be. That was the thing. Anyway, uh, following roughly a year at uh, Marvel Comics, in which editor in chief Jim Shooter kept him busy with odd jobs and fill-ins, in 1980 he began writing the Defenders. Beginning with number nineteen, beginning with number ninety-two, February nineteen eighty-one, penciled by Don Perlin. J.M. DeMatteis remembers, I'd always been a big fan of the series, especially the Steve Gerber era, because of its barrier-crashing, anything goes sensibility. That said, I certainly didn't lobby for the gig. Ed Hannigan was writing the book at the time and doing a fine job of it. So I was very surprised when I walked into Jim Shooter's office one day and he told me I was taking over Defenders, because he said, "I know you like Doctor Strange," which is true. I love Doctor Strange. And just a couple of years later, he'd be writing number 126, the very issue we'll be discussing today. Over at the other side of the table is Alan Kupperberg, born May 18, 1953, in Brooklyn, New York. He's the brother of comic book writer and editor Paul Kupperberg. He graduated from the High School of Art and Design in 1971 and entered the comics industry by working in Neil Adams Continuity Associates which I think today is called Continuity Studio or something like that. Hmm. Uh, this is a New York City and Los Angeles-based art and illustration studio formed by cartoonists Neil Adams and Dick Giordano in 1971, and is still in operation today, yep, as Continuity Studios. Allen was a member of the Krusty Bunkers. And no, that's not a revolutionary society. It is a collective pseudonym of a group of comic book inkers clustered around the Continuity Associates from 1972 to 1977. He began writing and drawing for Marvel in 1974, mostly doing fill-ins and one-shots. Allen later worked on team books such as The Invaders, that was issues 29, 30, 32 through 41, that was through uh, 1978 and 1979, and he drew several issues of What If, that was issues 8, 9, 20, 23, 29, 31, 38, and that was between the years of 1978 and 1983. In uh, 1978 as well, Kupperberg and writer Marv Wolfman took over the Howard the Duck weekly newspaper strip. Allen also worked on the short-lived The Incredible Hulk strip and Little Orphan Annie. Yeah, how about that? Uh, Kupperberg created the uh, one-shot comic Obnoxio the Clown versus the X-Men. This was April 1983 cover, uh, and he handled everything from writing to illustrating to lettering that. And he also drew the issue of The Defenders we're going to be discussing today. Yeah. So, uh, The Defenders. Who are The Defenders? That's what... People want to know, except for those that recently have watched Netflix. Uh, We'll tell you, the team really began because of the first volume of Doctor Strange, then written by Roy Thomas, that was canceled and needed to resolve its final storyline in other comics that he wrote, which at the time was a lot of them. Uh, The first part began in the last issue of Doctor Strange, number 183. That was November 1969 cover, drawn by Gene Colan. Then continued on to Submariner number 22, February 1970 cover, Drawn by Maurice Severin and The Incredible Hulk, number 126, April 1970, drawn by Herb Trimp. In the story, Doctor Strange teams with the Submariner and the Hulk to protect the Earth from invasion by the Undying Ones and their leader, the Nameless One. Uh, Barbara Norris first appears in the story, and she'll be important later. We'll talk about her more as we go on. I find it amazing that he did this. This was all uh, pre-direct market. 
Yeah. You know, uh, just just banking on people buying all the Marvel comics. Finding them you know? all. Yep. <laughs> uh, and I would I, I would like to think that a lot of people got every issue. Uh, the next incident of the Defenders was in Submariner number 34 to 35, that's February to March 1971, drawn by Sal Buscema. In here, Namor enlists the aid of Silver Surfer and the Hulk to stop a potentially devastating weather control experiment, inadvertently freeing a small island nation from a dictator and facing the Avengers under the name of the Titans Three. Mm, the Defenders first appeared as the Defenders as a feature in Marvel Feature Number 1, the December 1971 cover. Uh, this exchanges Stephen Strange for Norrin Rad and has them fight the alien techno-wizard Yandroth, then decide to stick together as a team. Stan Lee, wanting to write all of the Silver Surfer stories personally, had asked other writers not to use the character and suggested that Thomas use Doctor Strange instead. Yeah, hands off, Roy. Yes, <laughs> the surfer's mine. <laughs> True believer. Um, now, Roy Thomas had also speculated that Lee came up with the team's name. The Defenders is far too passive a name for my taste. I prefer more aggressive-sounding names like the Avengers or the Invaders. So Stan probably came up with that one. <laughs> Sure. Uh, due to the popularity of their tryout and Marvel feature, Marvel soon began publishing The Defenders with Steve Englehart writing and Sal Buscema penciling. We actually covered the very first issue in uh, episode 32 of the show, wow. uh, available in the archives. Nice. Uh, now, Roy Thomas moved to become the book's editor. Uh, despite Lee's con continuing edict on the use of the Silver Surfer, he approved Englehart's pitch to include the Surfer in the initial story. I mean, that's kind of messed up, you know, and, and, we, and we know that Roy Thomas had been a very nice uh, assistant to Stan Lee for such a long time. Sure. Uh, anyway, I, just, I, I think there's a, there's more to that story in there. I bet it, I bet it almost has to be right. Go into feeling. <laughs> I got the impression that that Roy, you know, he's he's not thrilled about the way things went down. But I guess you move <laughs> on. Life goes on. Sure, sure. Now, uh, Valkyrie would be introduced to the team in issue number four. That was February 1973. Uh, writer Engelhart had stated that he wanted to add the Valkyrie to the Defenders to provide some texture for, to the group. So he wrote for a while. He wrote the Avengers Defenders War crossover and the Avengers 116 through 118. That's October to December 73. Drawn by Bob Brown and the Defenders 9 through 11. That was October through December 1973 as well. Drawn by Sal Buscema. He left the Defenders afterwards because he didn't want to keep doing two team books at the same time. Len Wein briefly wrote the series and introduced such characters as Alpha the Ultimate Mutant in Defenders, Defenders number 15, September 1974, drawn by Sal Buscema, and The Wrecking Crew, everyone's favorite, in the Defenders number mm. 17, November 1974, also drawn by Buscema, Sal Buscema, that is. Wein also added Nighthawk to the cast because, in his words, doing so gave me a character to play with who didn't have a whole lot of previous history. A character I could do anything I wanted to without worrying about how it would affect any other titles that character might appear in. Nighthawk debuted in The Avengers number 69, October 1969, by Roy Thomas and Buscema as a supervillain, super but Len added him to The Defenders in issue number 13, May 1974, initially appearing to, appealing to the team for help. Len Wee would later edit The Defenders for several issues. Now, Steve Gerber first worked with the characters in Giant Size Defenders number 3, this is January 1975, in the story Games Godlings Play, which was drawn by Jim Starlin. He became the writer of the main title with issue 20 the following month. Uh, Steve wrote the series until issue 41 in November 1976, drawn by beautiful Sal Buscema. <laughs> uh, now, while writing the Defenders, Steve liked to revive forgotten characters. Uh, he brought back three pre-Marvel characters, uh, the Headmen in Defenders number 21, March 
March 1975, uh, whose members are Arthur Nagin, a.k.a. Gorilla Man, from uh, all the way back in Mystery Tales number 21, September 1974, I'm sorry, 1954, yeah. by Stan Lee and Bob Powell. Uh, also, Dr. Gerald Morgan, also known as Shrunken Bones, who appeared in World of Fantasy number 11 in April 1958 by Stan Lee and Angelo Torres. And uh, Chando the Mystic, who appeared in Tales of Suspense number 9 back in May 1960, also by Stan Lee and by Doug Wildly. Thursday Rubenstein, a.k.a. Ruby Thursday, would join the team in Defenders number 32, February 1976 cover, to even out the two teams. Uh, he also brought back the Guardians of the Galaxy in the Defenders number 26. This is August 1975. And this isn't the team you're thinking of. This no. is the original Guardians of the Galaxy that were created by Arnold Drake and Gene Colan back in 1969. So if you're looking for talking raccoons... Nope. None here. No dice. It's four, uh, it's four dudes of different differing body types is basically. That's about the, the size of it, isn't it? Short way to put it, yeah. <laughs> now the defenders met Kerber's Howard the Duck in Marvel Treasury Edition number twelve. That's January nineteen seventy six. Uh, Sal Buscema would end his long run on the defenders with issue forty one, uh, November nineteen seventy six, and he would be replaced by a very green Keith Giffen. Yeah, it must have been like a kid, like eighteen, very or early, something, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, due to Marvel's shuffling of editor in, editors in chief or editor in chiefs in the late <laughs> 70s, a brief run by Jerry Conway abruptly ended in mid production on issue number 45. That was March 77. David Anthony Kraft and Roger Slifer volunteered to write the series, but issue 45 had no written plot, having been drawn by Giffen following a story conference with Conway. That's that Marvel method. Mm-hmm. Bite you in the butt sometimes. Craft uh, and Slife were unable to contact either Conway or Giffen and had to puzzle out Conway's plot from the unscripted artwork. David Anthony Kraft's run as writer included the Scorpio saga, issues 46, 48 through 50. That was April through July 1977, drawn by Giffen. And Xenogenesis, Day of the Demons storyline, issues 58 through 60, April through June 1978, drawn by Ed Hannigan. The Defenders for a Day storyline in issues 63 through 64, that was August through October 78, drawn by Sal Buscema, saw dozens of new applicants attempting to join the Defenders, as well as a number of villains attempting to present themselves as Defenders members. Kraft later recalled that reactions to the story's offbeat humor were polarized. Readers, readers were either wildly enthusiastic or absolutely and very utterly appalled, he said. <laughs> Craft and artist Ed Hannigan explained some of the Valkyrie's backstory in the Defenders 66 through 68, December 1978, February 19 to February 1979 cover dates. Uh, her backstory is basically the whole Norse mythology thing, and we'll we'll be meeting her very shortly, so you'll learn more yeah. about her. Uh, at Craft's request, Hannigan helped write issue number 67, but found he could not handle both writing and artwork at once, so transitioned to being just the series writer with the following issue. Now, Stephen Grant wrote the conclusion to uh, Steve Gerber's Omega the Unknown series in two issues of The Defenders. This was issues 60, I'm sorry, 76 and 77, October through November 1979, drawn by Herb Trimpey. Uh, at the end of the arc, most of the original series characters were killed. Uh, Gerber seemed unhappy with Grant's conclusion. It nevertheless tied up the loose ends of the comic series and is considered canon by Marvel uh, when convenient. Right, yeah. All of those dead characters, by the way, live again and have died also in the interim. So Several times. Don't worry, <laughs> folks. <laughs> yes, because if, if you have any uh, Defenders comics from this time period, so many of the uh, 
letters pages are are asking about Omega the Unknown for some reason. Oh, so, really? Uh, yeah. So yeah, it seemed like they needed to to get it done. They felt they had to, uh, to address it somehow. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, writer J.M. DeMatteis would take over the series with issue 92, uh, coming from a background of writing eight-page horror shorts for DC Comics. DeMatteis found that a struggle to adapt to writing a 22-page superhero comic on a monthly basis. Uh, he and Mark Gruenwald co-wrote the Defenders numbers 107 through 109, that's May through July 1982, drawn by Don Perlin, which uh, resolved remaining plot points from the Valkyrie story by Kraft and Hannigan, published three years earlier. While, while working on the series, DiMatteis developed a strong friendship with penciler Don Perlin, who would draw the series for nearly half of its run. Perlin would, na- would later comment, It turned out to be a real fun book because he got the chance to draw almost every character Marvel had at one time or another. He has also stated that Kim DeMulder, who inked issues 122 through 144, apart from a few fill-ins, is his preferred anchor after himself. Yeah, why not? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Suffering from creative burnout on the series, DiMatteis felt a change was needed. And so, the new Defenders, number 126, came out. In it, Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, the Hulk, and Namor are forced to leave the team in response to an alien prophecy that states that these four, operating as a group, would be responsible for destroying the world. So, let's dive into the issue and learn all about it. Yeah, we laid the groundwork. So this is the new Defenders, number 126. I just want to say also, Joe pulled a little trick on me when he picked this book because he said it was Defenders (laughs) 126. And I looked it up everywhere, and it is listed everywhere under N. And so yes. he, he had a little fun with me there, but we found it eventually. This is a December 1983 cover date. The uh, title of the story is State of the Union, and the cover depicts the Defenders, comma, new fighting Leviathan, which is faithful to what actually happens in the book, and we'll meet Leviathan as we go through this. Uh, he's even clutching Angel the same way in this shot as he is in the book. Since the cover gives away the full roster up front, let's meet our cast right now. We've got Henry Hank McCoy, a.k.a. The Beast. He's one of the original X-Men, a brilliant and studious mind in an ape-like body. Along the way, his incisors grew and he got blue fur, which is how he looks in this issue. We've got Angel. Warren Worthington III is also one of the original X-Men, a snooty yuppie mutant with wings coming out of his back. And uh, believe it or not, he can fly. He even uses it to fly. (laughs) Got the Iceman, and I thought Andrew Dice, but Bobby Drake, who uh, is also one of the original X-Men, a tortured young fella that can turn himself into ice and make things icy, etc. Any ice, frosty thing, that's his bag. Uh, Bobby, Hank, and Warren first appeared in the X-Men number one, September 1963, by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. We got the gargoyle. Isaac Christians was an elderly man who would who would give his soul to save his hometown and then got trapped in the body of a gargoyle. Oh. His first appearance was Defenders number 94 back in April 1981 by J.M. DiMatteis and Don Perlin. And then Valkyrie, we've been teasing this uh, character. She is Brunhilde, the Viking warrior tasked by Odin to collect the faithful that fall in battle back to Valhalla. Uh, the Valkyries in Norse myth are actually supposed to be Brunhilde's all-woman winged horse-riding strike force. But, you know, whatever, that's fine. She can sure. be called Valkyrie. Uh, we've already said where and when she first appeared, both as Barbara Norin and Valkyrie. Although, to my knowledge... Once Barbara Norrin became Valkyrie, there was no there was no going back. Is that right? I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm I think not so. sure. I think she was like, ah, this form will do fine. <laughs> <laughs> We've got uh, Moon Dragon, Heather Douglas, trained herself in martial arts and telekinesis through discipline and exercise. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. It's gotta be my favorite one, you know. <laughs> At this point in her life, she is punished by Odin to wear a power-suppressing headband and for Valkyrie to be her mentor. I wonder if he uh, also imposed the haircut. Probably, um, yeah. <laughs> no, um, she first appeared as Madame McEvil in Iron Man Volume 1, number 54, January 1973, by Mike Friedrich and Bill Everett. And then as Moondragon in Daredevil, Volume 1, number 105, November 1973, by Steve Gerba, Don Heck, and Jim Stalin. I really want to know what kind of diet and exercise you can pursue to enhance your telekinesis, because I'm just curious, you know. I don't know. Probably a lot of raw foods, I have a feeling, yeah. Sure. So, uh, yeah, probably that. (laughs) So we'll we'll start the issue off on the first page. A decidedly youthful-looking Nick Fury stands with the new defenders and seems to say to the reader, Ain't exactly a pretty bunch, are they? Now, the next page reveals that he's not talking about the new defenders, but a bunch of baddies picked up from the last issue's fracas. That would be Mad Dog and the Mutant Force, and the Mutant Force are four characters named (laughs) Burner, Lifter, Slither, and Paralyzer. Love them. Now, they're held in these special shield cells that look perfect for display and keeping them in near-mint condition. Valkyrie says, Are you certain those cells could contain them, Colonel Fury? Valkyrie, when it comes to putting a lid on super creeps like this, shield science boys ain't failed yet. Those cells generate null fields guaranteed to neutralize their powers or your money back. Does that apply to the uh, cover price, too? He's 75 cents? One would hope, yeah. (laughs) One would hope so. Now, uh, Nick Fury bemoans the fact that he will have to interrogate these prisoners, and Moondragon offers to help him out. She says, My mental powers could not, could certainly peel away the layers of their pathetic minds, cuddle. I would gladly. No thanks, Moondragon. We got rules about that kind of stuff. Even these bozos have rights. For instance, they have the right to remain in stasis at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters in full view of everyone, so that's nice mm-hmm. for them. Bobby Drake <laughs> asked Fury about the other members of the Secret Empire that they beat up, and this would be Haradin, Cloud, and Seraph, namely. Nick has no memory of them. Yeah, Iceman goes, the three Empire operatives will be clobbered over the Vision's place. I knew what, I I wish I knew what you were talking about, Iceman, but I don't. Well, that did happen a whole two issues ago. That's a while. That's like 60 days. And for a lot, you know, for at least, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, in the 70s, it could have been 90. Anyway, uh, could have been. Beast corroborates Bobby's story. Yeah, he goes, Nick, listen to me. We turned them over to a squad of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents less than two weeks ago. You turned them over? Blast it. All we've done to stop them, they got in? Who? Who got in? The Secret Empire. We had reports of high-level infiltration, but we thought we had it licked. Hopefully he didn't use the ignore it and it'll go away protocol, because that rarely works. That always works. <laughs> For a little while. That, that Until works. the lights go out. Right. Uh, Nick Fury <laughs> and the new defenders begin ambling down a well-polished hallway. Looks like we're up against an outfit that has fins in some pretty high places. Including our own backyard. Believe me, Beast, we're going to nail these suckers. Gargoyle says, Don't be surprised if we nailed them first, Colonel! The angel goes, You know, Bob, I like the gargoyle style. He's a feisty old guy. Iceman goes, Ah, fess up, Warren. You just get off on his wing. Whoa. Nobody you just get off on his wings. Yeah, nobody said anything about getting off here, Bobby. Take uh, it easy. That's unfortunate. Uh, the new defenders hop into a handy, holographically disguised exit, and Hank McCoy says his final goodbyes. Thanks for the help, Nicholas. Maybe we can get together for some poker soon. It's been a while since I cleaned you out. Anytime, McCoy. Hey, 
By the way, yeah, you guys are some kind of new team or what? You hit the nail right on the head, Nicky boy. We're a what? Sheesh! Can't even get a straight answer from anybody these days. <laughs> then we'll be transitioning over to the new defenders, uh, emerging into the New York New York night, flying, bounding, and uh, we don't know ice bridging, whatever that is that uh, sure. Iceman does. The conversation attempts to wrap up other defenders-related loose ends. Angels carrying Moon Dragon, and of course, hitting on her. Beautiful evening, wouldn't you say? So, don't talk much, do you? I speak only when I have something of import to say. Empty verbiage wastes the spiritual energies. And also, wing dudes probably aren't her type. No. Oh, I know. I kind of like wasting my spiritual energies now and again. Was that an attempt at humor? Uh-huh. It failed. It was pretty lame at it that. It was pretty bad, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hank McCoy is mulling over the state of the newly formed team. He thinks to himself, there's something out of sync here. It's only been a matter of days since we joined together as the new defenders, but it feels like an incredible sense of, a, of commitment that bounded Damon and Patsy's wedding is dimmed. That wedding, by the way, was last issue, and he's referring to Patsy Walker, no less Hellcat. Mm -hmm. Yes, he continues to think. It's as if someone's let the wind out of our sails. Even I'm starting to have second thoughts, and I'm the one who pushed for this team in the first place. What is it? Nerves? Fear of failure? Or did we all just jump into something we really didn't want? <sighs> I hope tonight's big meeting sets things straight. Chris, do you get the impression Hank's dialogue's like right out of J.M. Dimitrius' journal? Like, this almost, is this, are we talking to Hank or are we talking to uh, J.M. here? <laughs> but you know, I, I hope it's both because I, I like sighing in my thoughts and I like sighing in my journal. There you so. go. Exactly. Either way, it works. That's right. <laughs> uh, Bobby also has eyes for Moondragon, apparently. So he has... Ice for her? <laughs> he thinks to himself, I wonder what's lying beneath that ice goddess exterior. Not that I'll ever find out. Looks like old Warren the Smoothie is mustering up the Worthington charm and moving in for the kill. What's with that guy anyway? He's got a terrific girl like Candy Southern, and he still can't stop trying to mesmerize every woman he... Bobby, look out! Distracted, Iceman runs right into a water tower, breaking his ice bridge and sending him plummeting toward the ground. Luckily, Valkyrie is there with her winged horse to catch him. She says, I believe the phrase is keep your eyes on the road. Actually, the phrase is you were in violation of FAA restricted airspace, but let's not spit yeah, split heads. Meanwhile, in the Smoky Mountains of Virginia, the Smokies, they call them, as I understand it, according to a <laughs> caption, the Secret Empire is teleconferencing with a massive shadowed figure named Number One that is very angry with their lack of progress. The rank and file are a bunch of dudes in purple druid robes, which I think is pretty standard Marvel fare for an evil organization, right? If you, that comes you, in the kit, yeah. Exactly. You, you turn to an evil conspiratorial organization, <laughs> you get a robe. That's how it works. <laughs> We're going to meet one called Number Seven, who says, I assure you, Number One, that despite the failure of the Greentown operation, all is progressing according to plan. In fact, we've taken measures to ensure that Baxter and the mutants are freed. We have a limited number number of operatives, and so we may have to use more blatant measures than we are accustomed to. And we just hope that that doesn't mean they have to take off their robes. Never that, no. Number one says, Do what you must, number seven, but see to it that those incompetent idiots are in my presence no later than tomorrow night. Is that understood? And so number one pounds his desk where we see a copy of Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire is jostled. 
man, there's actually no book by that name. Nope. Uh, there is a famous six-volume work called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbons, published by Strahan and Caldell uh, between uh, ni- 1776 and 1789. It is, as you'd imagine, considered the definitive work. Yeah. Now, no, no one back... wanted to do another six volumes, apparently, so that's fine. No, never. <laughs> uh, unless it falls again, then we'll have to do a, a, a sequel. That's now, right. uh, <laughs> back at S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, a siren indicates there's trouble on level L. Nick Fury pries open a sliding door with all of his fury. I guess, yeah. Some uh, <laughs> S.H.I.E.L.D. agent lackey there says, The elevators are dead from this level down. Electricity's out, too. Ain't that just ducky? They hop into the abyss with some fancy flashlights. And the lackey says, Uh, Colonel, this thing they've got down on level L? Clam up and keep your eyes wide. Then he thinks to himself, He's nervous and I can't blame him. Level L's where we keep the leftovers from that little disaster we had in the Caribbean. Nothing unusual at first. Bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. scientists working on a hush-hush project. Yeah, it's nothing unusual, that's fine. Yeah, that's no, no question. Normal stuff. Yeah, he continues to think, but by the time we found out who those crackpots really up to out there, it was all we could do to shut those suckers down. So Colonel Fury and his team shine their lights on a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents lying motionless on the floor. I'm going to say they're dead, right? That seems yeah. like the obvious thing. Then there's a big thoom sound behind Nick, causing him to whirl around in surprise. Mm. But first, over on Manhattan's Upper East, Upper West Side, at the Defenders' headquarters, uh, still looked after by Dolly Donahue, an old friend of Patsy Walker's, and it is time for the meeting to begin. Yeah, Valkyrie says, You did say you had something important to speak to us about, Hank? Moondragon says, Indeed, you melodramatically stated that the future of our new Defenders rests upon this meeting. She show a little emotion, and a dude's all of a sudden melodramatic. Come on, you know, we got to have sensitive, yeah. some sensitivity around here. <laughs> sure. Uh, Beast replies with, it does, because tonight's the night we drop our team's charter. To which Iceman goes, I'll go get the Crayolas. Yeah, you're probably the only one that has any there, Sonny. Mm-hmm. Buddy. Beast, <laughs> Beast continues, discuss potential sites for, the head, for a new headquarters, and best of all, select our official team leader. Now, doesn't that sound like fun? Valkyrie clears her throat. <clears throat> Something insightful to offer, Val? Yeah, I offer myself. Oh, just hold on a minute. We're we're getting if, a lot of missing. If mis- there is anyone study. here qualified to assume the mantle of leadership, it is the Valkyrie. Oh, oh, offer herself as team leader. Okay, oh, that, that's, that's fine. That's, that's okay. fine. A lot better than I thought. Yeah, we don't need the code involved here. <laughs> Hear me all. I am an Asgardian warrior born handpicked by Lord Odin himself to command the immortal Valkyrie. For years I battled bravery proudly alongside the original Defenders, yeah. But what is she going to do about all the taxes? And the, <laughs> that's you know, my the, issue. The... <laughs> that's what I want to know. <laughs> Beast says, actually, Val, I was kind of toying with the idea of nominating someone else for the job. Who? Me. So this is why I usually can't nor- nominate yourself in these situations. This is exactly right? the problem. Everyone will just will nominate themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, Valkyrie responds with, <laughs> Hey, uh, what's the joke? Forgive me, Hank, but the concept of you leading us is most amusing. Gee, it's nice to know you all think so highly of me. Valkyrie keeps busting Hank's chops and says he doesn't have the right temperament or experience to be the team leader. After all, can the king's yester be expected to take charge of his armies? 
Well, Iceman takes some exception because he's the jester. Now he uh, he says, <laughs> "Hold on a minute, lady. That jester was a valued member of the X-Men and the Champions. His energy, his dreams, brought this team together." Plus, isn't he like it's super genius and stuff? And we're not talking about yeah. some guy off the street here. <laughs> yeah, he's not just some dude. Uh, Valkyrie says, "Watch your tour, Iceman." Oh man, he's she's gonna make a great leader. Yeah, energy. really. Now everyone argues while Moondragon looks on with interest. And Warren is looking at her with creepiness. Moondragon says, Ah, at last I understand why Odin sent me to Earth to study Brunhilde's gleaming example. She interacts so perfectly with humanity. Now Warren's had it up the ear. He says, uh, That's it. That's it. If you want to argue like two-year-olds, be my guest. But if that's what's in store for the new defenders, then you can count the angel out. So then he flies out of the window like a cranky two-year-old. Sure. While flying away, Warren thinks of how he has grown beyond these petty squabbles. He even references the time he spent in the Savage Lands, which, according to a caption, will happen in an upcoming Marvel fanfare. <laughs> now that's continuity, folks. When you can right? reference things that are going to happen as happening in the past, that's the way comics ought to be. And writing him out of his, his actual home comic to do it. It's, it's, I mean, this is the way comics ought to be, I think. I, yes. I, I really like seeing that. Uh, Jim Warren Shooter. Is, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Shoot, that's, <laughs> the shooter is on uh, on the case. Mm-hmm. Warren is still lost, uh, lost in deep and very wordy thought when a car <laughs> goes flying past him. And it's not a flying car, by the way. It's a regular car hurtling into the stratosphere. Yes, he thinks to himself, wow, either gravity's just gone haywire, or someone is hurling cars and lampposts headlong into the East River. Could that someone be Mac the Knife? I'm going to guess not. Probably Probably not. (laughs) More likely, it's another crazed supervillain out for an evening's rampage. Guess I'd better have a look. Angel dives off panel to investigate the source of this soaring hardware. And then we see he's tossed back into the sky, staying in the fight by swinging around on a flagpole, but we don't see what tossed him yet. Mm -hmm. Elsewhere, the rest of the new defenders are out to find Warren. Yes, Iceman goes, If I know Warren, he flew home to his penthouse, stick on a Sinatra album, and slipped into his hot tub. The Beast says, Then to the penthouse we go. You really want to disturb the guy when he's having me time like this? Right. If you know he's in the hot tub. Mm -hmm. Gargoyle says, I'm glad you kids finally came out of your senses and realized what jackasses you were acting like. Valkyrie says, Indeed, Isaac, I believe myself above such puerile behavior. In truth, it was the, I was the worst culprit of all. Now Moondragon sits on the back of Valkyrie's flying horse. She says, Out through. I'm sure Warren will come around once we apologize, Hank. The guy loves us too much to turn his back on us. Gargoyle sees a bunch of cop cars and says, Oh, look! Just like Hill Street Blues! Uh, Hill Street Blues was a serial cop drama that aired on NBC from 1981 to 1987. Mm-hmm. A bunch of police vehicles are rushing along, lights and sirens blaring. So, of course, the new defenders must follow. Holy jumping fireballs! Holy jumping fireballs. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, a massive guy in a yellow leot- a leotard has Angel in one hand, and he's punching a cop car with the other. Some captions help with the introductions. Once he was a man, a brilliant shield scientist named Edward Covert. Now he is simply Leviathan. For three years he has lain, shackled, sedated, in a top security cell a mile beneath S.H.I.E.L.D.'s Manhattan complex. Tonight, someone set him free, and Leviathan couldn't be happier. 
Which, you know, I, I get that. I, that's understandable. I'd be happy. Uh, and yeah. also, based on his dialogue, we kind of can guess Leviathan's plan for the immediate future. And she goes, kill, smash, crush, mash, rip, mash, double, crash. Seems like he's covered all the bases. Yeah. I think so. They, and they rhyme, too. So he, he's thought this. I, that's how we know he thought it out. He made it all rhyme. <laughs> Capture continues. Four years ago, Cobert was named head of the Caribbean-based Olympus Project which was dedicated to the development of a new breed of superhuman answerable directly to the President of the United States. There were those in power who feared the plethora of superhumans operating independently, who felt the nation would be better served by super operatives with more direct governmental ties. That sounds like an absolutely great idea with no obvious flaws, right? No, yeah, definitely. Reporting right to the president, you know, a guy whose job changes every 48 years, that's a good plan. <laughs> uh, but Cobert and his associates wanted to go one step further. They wanted their new breed of hero to totally eradicate the old. It sort of goes without saying. Yeah, I think it worked together. Uh, seeing that Leviathan's got Warren, McCoy leaps right toward the danger, and Leviathan responds by chucking Warren at McCoy. Yeah, and he says, another little Superman? Uh, careful now, lawyers are reading. Mm-hmm. Goody, goody, two birds, one stone, dead, dead. Beast is able to contort himself on the fly so he can grab Warren with his feet as he zips by him. And then they fall through a convenient awning to, rel- to relative safety. It must be for a convenience store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, that was a good one. It was great. Uh- <laughs> Beast. Beast goes, I never want to do that again. Warren, old buddy, are you? Dazed and aching, Ank, but I'm okay. Nice catch, pal. Leviathan's now concentrating on the rest of the defenders, and Iceman is hurling frosty stuff at him as best he can. And actually encases Leviathan's head and shoulders in ice. But Leviathan pretty much shrugs it off. Uh, Valkyrie dumps Moondragon off and flies her steed into battle. Yeah, there is no more time to waste. The battle must end now, and Runehelda must be the one to end it. Moondragon says, Valkyrie, don't be a fool. If we hope to defeat this creature, then we must... Idiot! She refuses to even listen. Valkyrie leaps off of Pegasus and flies onto Leviathan's midsection with a womp. It sends him reeling, and he falls into a building. Oh, don't worry, though. It's just an Applebee's. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, Valkyrie keeps punching Leviathan in the face, making pock, wock, pock sounds. <laughs> <laughs> then he lets loose with a right cross that lands with a crack. Valkyrie thinks to herself, It is ghost that hurt. Hurt so much, he falls to the ground. Gargoyle has to swoop in to grab her and bring her to safety. Don't worry, Val. Uncle Isaac's got you. That hurt. That actually hurt. Now behind a, a police line, the defenders regroup. You're feeling all right now. I feel ashamed. Nothing to be ashamed of, Val. You can't always whoop the bad guy first time out. And you, McCoy. Huh? Stop standing there with your head hanging like a defeated little boy. We've got to stop that Leviathan. The name's already been established. Uh, thanks, pal. Thanks, Warren. A little too late. Uh, the caption took care of it a couple of pages ago. So Leviathan lumbers toward our heroes. Super people. Bad people. Dirty little fiends. Beast goes, I've only, I've only got one question. How? Well, if the rest of that question is, did he get that giant leotard? I'm right there with you. Right? I don't know where you'd shot for that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> 
And Leviathan, proving not to be a cliche at all, goes, fee fi fo fum fight off your heads one by one. And then Moondragon levitates above her teammates. How, beast, by letting Moondragon do what only she can! Moondragon fires some sort of mind bolt at Leviathan that goes, Zack! But it has no effect. Sirens of Titan! His mind so warped that my brain blasts are nearly ineffective. If only this cursed headband didn't limit my ability to... Oh, clam up for a minute, will you? The only reason we haven't stopped that thing is because we're not working together. We're defenders, aren't we? Is he asking us? We, we don't know. Oh, you tell me, dude. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the way superhero teams normally work together is to have a couple of them run interference while the others fire their respective energy blast at their foe. And that's exactly what happens. There you go. They ran, they ran uh, plan A1. There you go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, Moonshake fires another brain bolt at Leviathan, and this time it works for some reason. Yeah. Oh, my brain bursts from the string. I shall see this brute fall. No, not fair. Eat him up. Eat him up. And then Valkyrie swoops in to lay a double punch on Leviathan's cheek, then flips over his head and lands back on her winged horse. It's a pretty sweet move, she says. Mm-hmm. Folly will, Moondragon, once the Valkyrie has administered the finishing torture. That hurt. And Leviathan starts to topple over. As Beast goes, look out below. Then Leviathan goes, that really hurt. Leviathan falls face forward with a loud punk. And then shield agents swoop in to restrain the massive and eloquent monster. Yes, Nick Fury goes, hurry up with the... How did I do Nick Fury earlier? Hurry hurry up with those... There you go, that was about right. Especially this on manacles. He may be out now, but he'll be up looking for dessert in less than five minutes. You know, I don't think you need to specify that 20-foot-long restraints are specially designed. We can kind of assume... Right? You, don't, you don't pick those, those up yeah, down at the... Those uh, aren't at the Home Depot, yeah. No, no. <laughs> Iceman goes, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the big lug. Beast goes, according to Fury, that big lug killed four S.H.I.E.L.D. agents tonight. Did he get debriefed off panel somewhere? I mean, literally, when did he find this out? Man, he doesn't have telepathy. (laughs) Uh, He continues, heaven knows what further damage he would have done if we hadn't stopped him. Well, he seemed to be on a single-minded crusade against superheroes, so theoretically speaking, they would have borne the brunt of his damage. The Earth might have been safe, only the Right, he just wants the heroes. Yeah, so I don't see what the problem is. Well, Angel figures it's all moot because he goes, but we did stop him, Hank. Fury goes, yeah, you guys did a good job out there. Good? We were spectacular. We were, weren't we? I give it a B minus personally. It was all right. I think so, yeah. Six out of ten. Seven out of ten. There you go. (laughs) Uh, A S.H.I.E.L.D. agent runs up to Nick Fury to say that while they were fooling around with Leviathan, Mad Dog and the mutant force escaped. Now, ain't that an interesting coincidence? To be continued. But uh, we're not continuing this exact story. We're just going to tell you about what happened to the Defenders after everything. Indeed. Uh, The new Defenders concept provided a substantial boost to the series' sales, but left DeMatteis in a creative drought as he realized in retrospect that, I created a book that was exactly the kind of thing that I hated to write. I made it into a standard superhero team. Uh, Dimitea stayed on for only six issues of this new Defenders before turning it over to writer Peter Gillis, whose run was marked by shorter, more personal stories. 
Gillis recounted, I had been working for a while at Marvel and was constantly pumping for more work, and specifically a series of my own. So when I heard DiMatteis was leaving Defenders, I was in editor Carl Potts' office like a shot, and I got the gig. So with this in mind that DiMatteis left after six issues, that, you know, that dial inner monologue of beasts really sounds like it's him thinking like doesn't it what did i get <laughs> what into am I here? Doing? what did i do what is who are these guys uh though the series remained a modest hit through the gillis perlin run it was canceled to make Ruben marvel's production schedule for the new universe line in 1989 hmm. uh this is that jim shooter brainchild listener sometimes threatened to choose for the cosmic treadmill so so far we haven't gotten one picked for it but i'm sure it'll happen <laughs> Uh, the final issue was the new Defenders number 152. That was a February 1986 cover date. In the final issue, several members, Gargoyle, Moondragon, and Valkyrie, plus allies uh, Andromeda, Manslaughter, and Interloper, seemingly die in battle to, uh, with the Dragon of the Moon controlling Moondragon. Uh, the mutants hmm. leave and go hang out in the book X-Factor. They do. Now, Gillis has claimed that the killing off of the members of the group was a directive from the editorial staff to free up the surviving members for usage in X-Factor, uh, pointing out that he'd revived several of these seemingly deceased characters not long after the issues in Solo Avengers, issue 16, March 1989, for instance, uh, that would feature Moon Dragon, and in Strange Tales, volume 2, issues 5 through 7, August-October 1987, uh, Followed by issues three and four of the relaunched Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme series, that was March, April 1989, which flat out restored the deceased members of the new Defenders. In 1990, the original trio reunited in The Incredible Hulk issues 370 and 371, this is June and July of that year, by Peter David and Dale Keown, uh, in which it was revealed that the alien prophecy that was keeping them apart was a hoax the entire time. Oh, no way. (laughs) The originals then rejoined with the Silver Surfer in 1992 in a story entitled The Return of the Defenders uh, that ran in the uh, the annuals that year. Incredible Hulk Annual 18, Namor the Submariner Annual 2, Silver Surfer Annual 5, and Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme Annual Number 2. That's cool. You know, that they they kind of went back to the original uh, origin of the Defenders. In 1993, Marvel sought to revive the Defenders' brand as the Secret Defenders. Mm-hmm. The new team first appeared unofficially in Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme number 50, February 1993 cover by Len Kaminsky and Jeff Isherwood, and later Fantastic Four number 374, March 1993 cover by Tom DeFalco and Paul Ryan, before being officially introduced in Secret Defenders number 1, March 1993 cover by Roy Thomas and Andre Coates. The idea here was that Doctor Strange assembled rotating teams of heroes for specific missions. Members included Wolverine, Darkhawk, Spider-Woman, Spider-Man, Hulk, Ghost Rider, and like a couple of others because it wasn't that long of a series. And the specific mission was raising sails. There you go. That was the mission. Uh, and they, they, they did okay. I got middling. But yeah, it, it, this would last for the first several months of the title before Doctor Strange was removed from the book through the character being reassigned to the Midnight Suns line in Marvel. This was a branding for all the spooky heroes of Marvel from 92 to 94. Not like an imprint, but a, a cover banner, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Basically. Yeah, it's a little a little fiefdom there. Yeah. Uh, now, after an arc with the supervillain Thanos organized a team of secret defenders, uh, leadership of the team passed to Dr. Druid, and the series itself abandoned the revolving door roster in favor of Druid and the 
Cognoscenti. Sure. Hmm. <laughs> the series was canceled with Secret Defenders number 25. This is March 1995 cover by Tom Brevoort, Mike Kantovic, and Bill Wiley. Tom Brevoort, his writer, tells you how far this had fallen in, uh, in the public. <laughs> uh, he, he, was, he was a new guy then, too. He would have been on there a couple like, of years. Uh, he's in the office. Give exactly. It Give it to him. Yeah. Now, in 2001-2002, the Defenders reunited in Defenders Volume 2, Issues 1 through 12, created by Kurt Busiek and Eric Larson. Uh, this was immediately followed by The Order, Issues 1 through 6, in which Yandroth manipulated Gaia into cursing the primary four Defenders, that's Doctor Strange, Namor, the Hulk, and Silver Surfer, so that they would be summoned to major crisis situations. Uh, these members were then mind-controlled by Yandroth into forming the world-dominating Order, since the Order were freed from this control by their fellow heroes, including you know former teammates Hellcat, Nighthawk, and Valkyrie, the Defenders apparently disbanded. Oh, okay. Sure. <laughs> a fill-in fill issue set between the two issues. It's uh, Defenders from the Marvel Vault, number one, September 2011, by Kurt Busiek, Fabian Nicias, and Mark Bagley, was published in 2011. But going backwards again, a Defenders five-issue miniseries debuted in July 2005 by Keith Giffen, J.M. DeMatteis, and Kevin McGuire. Featuring Doctor Strange attempting to reunite the original four Defenders to battle Dormammu and Umar. This is a humorous series, and characters spend most of their time arguing and criticizing one another. I think we can call this the Bwahaha Defenders, or at least an attempt mm -hmm. at it, right? Yeah, uh, an attempt. <laughs> in 2008, <laughs> uh, Joe Casey wrote a new miniseries, The Last Defenders, with a new lineup of Defenders as a result of the Superhuman Registration Act and the events of the Civil War. The lineup is led by Nighthawk with Blazing Skull, Colossus, and She-Hulk as members. This is a lineup of Tony Stark's direction. The team is disbanded for incompetence, but eventually a team is formed outside the initiative with the Son of Satan, She-Hulk, Krang, and Nighthawk. Hmm. And uh, even though that was called The Last Defenders, it unfortunately wasn't. It was not, uh, no. <laughs> During the 2011 Fear Itself storyline by Matt Fraction, uh, Doctor Strange forms a new version of the Defenders with Lyra, the daughter of Hulk, Namor, Loa, a mutant, and the Silver Surfer to confront Atuma, who had become Nurkad, Breaker of Oceans. <laughs> Ugh. Um, many past defenders uh, appear in the final issue. Boy, this is getting this is getting so simple to follow, isn't it, Chris? Uh, as we go isn't along, it? sure. This is uh, this is like a straight line. You know? Now, uh, Marvel launched a new Defender series in December 2011, written by Matt Fraction and drawn by Terry Dotson, and uh, at least it was pretty. Um, mm. This new book featured uh, Doctor Strange, Red She-Hulk, Namor, the Silver Surfer, and Iron Fist. Uh, during the battle against the Death Celestials, the characters Black Cat, Nick Fury, and Ant-Man also joined the team. The series made it 12 issues until uh, January 2013. I remember that one because I opened the first issue and it was like it was like Doctor Strange doing it with with a, with a woman. Oh, really? Right like, away. I'm like, yeah. wow, it's oh, uh, it's Mad Fraction. There you go. Nice. Um, February 2013 saw the debut of the Fearless Defenders, a series written by. Colin Bunn, with artwork by Will Slining. Um, feeling a yawn coming up. Uh, <laughs> Bunn said that he wanted to write the series, which centers on a new team of Valkyrie, led by Valkyrie and Misty Knight, after writing Fear Itself, The Fearless. And then, in August 2017, Marvel launched a new Defenders comic book series starring Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke Cage, and Iron Fist, based on the Netflix incarnation of the team. And hey, there is a Netflix show at that. So I just want to talk about what we've just 
said and maybe the issue we read, you know, I had a good time with the issue. I think it's a good uh, 80s indicator, right? It's kind of a sure. falls, falls into a certain context and, you know, it was fun. Had a lot of quipping, had a lot of back and forth. I definitely would give it over to pilot episode syndrome or something like this, you know, the, a lot of mm-hmm. uh, making sure reiterating the names of characters, which is well appreciated and I wish more comics today would do that kind of thing. That's a fact. Uh, but we can see with this concept of the Defenders, you're getting diminishing returns over time. Just like, what what weird character can we shoehorn into this team now? And that doesn't seem yeah. to be... That's not the concept as it was originally conceived, you know? Even even yeah. Steve Gerber mining characters, he's mining them out of, you know, whatever they were, the, uh, you know, the monster titles, the uh, Marvel yeah, mystery the, titles. Between, go- between Golden and Silver Age, a little bit there. It, it's yeah. a, it's it, That's a far cry from like, oh, let's put it, man, that'll be silly, you know, and, and uh, yeah. I think I think that's really, it's the, you know, they just turned it into a clearinghouse for being silly and funny characters, and uh, I think that's why you're getting diminishing returns, folks. It's that, that's, you know, Absolutely. First, first of all, you need, you need, most teams need some sort of a linchpin character that's going to be, you know, your, at least one, you know, your, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Doctor Strange would be the one I would think of, or maybe Silver Surfer, depending on who was on the team. They're they're all pretty marked top flight characters in my estimation. But uh, sure, yeah, I mean, you know, the concept. Let's, let's let's just say the concept of putting Ant Man, just for example, on a team of heroes may be funny, but then you have to write him. Don't forget, exactly. about, don't forget about that part. It's not just an idea. Then you have to write him and have a reason why he's on the team, why he's useful. And that's usually yeah, it's not just a cute solicitation picture. It, it's that's, it, it's a story. That's the, my impression is that's as far as it goes. Like, wouldn't it be funny if uh, you know, yeah. Hammerhead and uh, Black Cat were on the same team, and then what happens? Mm-hmm. Not well. We don't know. We just know that would be funny. So uh, I don't know. That's my opinion on the matter, or you know, that's what we think about a uh, few. You know, more defenders. I mean, Doctor Strange, one of my favorite characters. All those guys. I, I love the Hulk. I love mm-hmm. Namor. I love Silver Surfer a lot. And so this speaks to me. You know, sure. Black Cat, uh, Red She-Hulk. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. What do you want me to do with that? <laughs> it starts to feel like like an old CBR thread of, wouldn't it be cool if right. Squirrel Girl was an Avenger? You yeah. know, and it's like the line it well, is drawn. That's what they do, right? That's yeah. Like, so uh, anyway, um, but uh, there is a series happening right now, as I understand it. So uh, I is it not... still going on with Bendis leaving? I gotta be honest, I have no idea. I have no. I didn't. Me read either. It, so yeah. I don't know. I nah, me either. I didn't watch the Netflix show, but we'll talk about that a little bit, very little bit later on. Yes. First, we're going to wrap up our creator bios, as we like to do. Uh, J.M. DeMatteis wrote lots of Captain America from 1981 to 1984 with penciler Mike Zeck and Marvel team-up. He wrote also from 1981 to 1983. But he was best known at this point for his nearly unbroken run on the Defenders from issue 92 to 118 and then 120 to 131. That was between the years of 1981 and 1984. J.M. DeMatteis worked on a bunch of Ghost Rider issues between 1982 and 1983 with penciler Bob Budiansky. He, uh, having enjoyed their working relationship, DeMatteis wrote a Prince Namor the Submariner limited series drawn by Budiansky, 1 through 4, September through December 1984 cover dates. DeMatteis had mixed feelings about the series itself, though, and said he, one part of... The one part of which he was unreservedly proud was the look into Namor's ears as an amnesiac homeless man. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. DeMatteis and illustrator John J. Muth created the graphic novel Moonshadow from 1985 to 1987 for Marvel's Epic line. This is the first fully painted American comic, so the claim goes. <laughs> uh, DeMatteis followed this with the 1986 Doctor Strange graphic novel Into Shambhala, drawn by Dan Green and Blood, 
A Tale, a hallucinatory va- vampire story drawn by Kent Williams. Yes, and that uh, Moonshadow with John J. Muth was actually reprinted uh, in Vertigo as a uh, monthly. Oh, really? Yeah, monthly title in that's the cool. mid-90s. That's not, that's, he has another one uh, that I think did that also as we go along. I think you're right, yeah. Now, uh, Demetrius and Mike Zeck would reteam to do Craven's Last Hunt uh, in Spider-Man. That ran from October to November 1987, and that went through all three Spider-Man titles at the time. It's uh, one of the most revered and collected, arc, collected arcs in Marvel Comics history. Uh, did you ever read it? Yeah, yeah, I've read it. Yeah, I think it's just okay. It's... It, uh, <laughs> Like all things in comics and life, you have to take it in its context. You know, it's yeah. it's, it's lost its bite, but fine. Yes. Uh, now moving back to DC, uh, Demetrius has succeeded Jerry Conway as the writer of the superhero team uh, Justice League of America. That began with issue 256, November 1986. He used the pen name Michael Ellis on his first issue of the series. Uh, he would stay on through the relaunch as Justice League International, scripting over the plots of Keith Giffen. Uh, that it became Justice League International issue 7, November 1987, with uh, pencils by Kevin McGuire. Uh, the success of Justice League International led to a spin-off in 1989 titled Justice League Europe, uh, also co-written with Giffen and featuring the art of Bart Sears. Uh, the giffen Mateus team worked on the Justice League for five years and closed out their run with a very, very long story called Breakdowns. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, in 1991 and 1992. Yeah, definitely, definitely had the long goodbye on that one. They did. Uh, back at Marvel, Demetrius again succeeded Conway, this time as writer of the spectacular Spider-Man, beginning with 178, July 1991 cover, drawn by Sal Buscema. The story arc, The Child Within, from 178 to 184, featured the return of the Harry Osborne Green Goblin. Demetrius took over from David Michelini as writer of The Amazing Spider-Man, beginning with number 390, that was June 1994 cover, continuing to 406, October 1995 cover. During this run, Aunt May would die, but it didn't take, don't worry. It never takes. She got better. She got better. Also included at the beginning of that Clone Saga arc we all love mm-hmm. so much. Uh, J.M. Demetrius helped launch DC's mature audience Vertigo imprint, writing the graphic novels Mercy and Farewell Moonshadow, which was a sequel to the Epics comic series. And apparently they reissued Moonshadow, as uh, mm-hmm. Chris told us. Demetrius wrote an autobiographical digest-sized miniseries, Brooklyn Dreams, published by DC's Paradox Press imprint. This was four issues, 1994 to 1995, and that was later collected in one volume under the Vertigo imprint. I didn't know... I thought Paradox only did those books, really. I didn't know they the, did, uh, they did single issues. The uh, big book of well, these these were uh, these were like digests. They were act- the, the, they had spines. Interesting, but they uh, well, the, but, yeah like they were manga sized things or something. Yeah, just around the size, but a lot thinner. Interesting. But uh, yeah, I, I do have this Brooklyn Dreams from Paradox. It's a uh, it's it's a weird one to fit on your shelf because of the size. Oh yeah, it was annoying. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. Now, in the 2000s, Demetrius redefined the specter through the, the character of Hal Jordan as the spirit of redemption rather than of vengeance. That uh, Hal Jordan specter ran 27 issues from March 2001 through May 2003. Demetrius co-scripted the Gods of Gotham storyline in Wonder Woman. This is issues 164 through 166, January through March of 2001, with Phil Jimenez. In 2003, with Giffen, he revived the Justice League International for the miniseries, formerly known as the Justice League. Uh, this series won Giffen, DiMatteis, and the artist Kevin McGuire an Eisner Award. Uh, the team would follow this up with, I can't believe it's not the Justice League. This was an arc in JLA Classified. 
And then at the same time over at Marvel, they, they did that five-issue run on the Defenders. Right. Now, DiMatteis teamed with veteran artist Mike Plug to create the cross-gen fantasy comic Abadazad. Abadazad? That's what I would have I said. Think I, I think I got it the first time. Good job. Uh, this was May 2004. Uh, the following year, Plug and DiMatteis announced that they were collaborating on a five-issue miniseries, The Stardust Kid, from Image Comics imprint Desperado Publishing. The series would be moved over to Boom Studios in 2006. Also in 2006, DiMatteis and Giffen began work on two original superhero comedy series. We have uh, Hero Squared and Planetary Brigade, also through Boom Studios. The Walt Disney Company acquired Abadazad for its Hyperion books uh, for children in print that same year. The first two books in the series, Abadazad, The Road to Inconceivable, and Abadazad, The Dream Thief, were released in June 2006. The third book, Abadazad, The Puppet, The Professor, and The Prophet, would be released in the United Kingdom in 2007. DiMatteis became editor-in-chief of Arden Entertainment in 2008, guiding the launch of the new Flash Gordon comic book series. Which I haven't seen recently, nor do I know what Arden Entertainment is, so I... I no, same here. Don't think that's his title still, but anyway. Uh, J.M. DiMatteis wrote a five-issue comic book limited series illustrated by Mike Cavallaro, titled The Life and Times of Savior 28, which was released by IDD, IDW Publishing in 2009. In June 2010, DiMatteis' children's fantasy novel, Imaginalis, was published by Catherine Teagan Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. That same year, DiMatteis reunited once again with frequent collaborator Keith Giffen for a run on the comic book series Booster Gold that was number 32 to 43, July 2010 to June 2011. The two teamed on the DC retroactive JLA of the 90s one-shot in cover date October 2011 that came out the Flashpoint summer as we know it. Summer, yep. Uh, that year, DiMatteis created the all-ages fantasy The Adventures of Augusta Wind for IDW Publishing. And in 2013, he took over DC Comics' Phantom Stranger and launched a 12-issue Larflees series with Keith Giffen. DiMatteis became writer of Justice League Dark in October 2013, and again with Giffen, launched Justice League 3000 in December. In 2015, DiMatteis teamed with animation legend Bruce Timm for Justice League Gods and Monsters, a comic book prequel to the animated film. In 2016, Giffen and DiMatteis launched Scooby Apocalypse for DC Comics, which Chris knows very well. Mm-hmm. And in that same year, he, he reviewed it. That's why, folks, I don't want to rake you over the coals if people, <laughs> people think you like a uh, dark Scooby story. Uh, in that same year, IDW published DiMatteis' Augusta Wind sequel, The Adventures of Augusta Wind. The Last Story. And J.M. DiMatteis has written for television, both live-action and animated series, and he released one album in the late 1990s, and I, I want everyone to go look for it and send me the MP3s. It's titled, How Many Lifetimes? Question mark. That, that is one busy dude. I know. He has done a lot and uh, mm-hmm. stays busy. And, and Still like, busy. And, yeah. and the variety, you know what I mean? The, Absolutely. Traditional publishing. And every comic company, his own stuff. He's writing for Spider-Man, everything. Yeah, he's a guy who likes what he's doing, and it's nice mm-hmm. to see that. Absolutely. Uh, back across the table with Alan Kupperberg. He would draw issues 126 through 128, 131, 133, and 150 of the Defenders between 1983 and 1985. From uh, 1984 to around 1990, he illustrated such DC titles as Justice League of America, his issues 229 through 232, Blue Devil, uh, issues 12 through 30, Warlord, issue 92, Fury of Firestorm, issues 32 through 36, 
Cops the Comic Book, issues 11 and 12, also 14 and 15, and Dragonlance, issues 26 and 28 and 29. Do you have any issues of Cops? I do, actually. I, I, you got to review that. you got to throw that up on the site. i got to see going, what this yeah. is. Holy cow. I've, I've actually, uh, I, I got it not too long ago, and it's it's in one of the boxes right now after the move. But uh, what, what it's, it's all it's shirtless a... white dudes throughout the whole thing, right? <laughs> well, it's the, uh, it's the, <laughs> it's different cops. <laughs> it's the fighting crime in the future time cops. Oh, I thought it was, I thought it was cops, the, uh, not the Fox bad show. Boys, I thought it was not... all bad boys. Man. I was like, what the heck kind of a show oh, is that? The whole thing happens in a trailer park. Oh. Now, <laughs> now in uh, 1987, uh, Kupperberg worked on both Spectacular Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man. His work on those titles included Amazing Spider-Man number 289. This is June 1987, which featured the Jack-O-Lantern becoming the new Hobgoblin, as well as Spectacular Spider-Man annual number 7 from 1987, which depicted the honeymoon of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. From uh, 1988 through 1991... He drew Spider-Ham backups in the back of Marvel Tales, T-A-I-L-S. Uh, Alan Kupperberg also worked on several of Marvel's custom titles, including Campbell Soup Company, uh, including uh, one for the U.S. Department of Energy, the Sylvan Learning Center, and also the Dallas Times-Herald. Uh, Kupperberg worked on script development and character design for S- Sullivan Bluth Studios' 1994 animated feature, Thumbelina. Uh, from 1994, he worked with Nickelodeon on the Tom Terrific animated project, which uh, went nowhere. Oh, well. Uh, Alan, uh, he passed away from cancer on July 17th, 2015. Yeah, just a couple of years ago, which is too bad. But uh, this is a guy, he strikes me, you know, when you look at his work, it's not the work that's going to stick out in your mind, but it's it's no. capable work. And he strikes me as Solid. the guy you could call on when you needed a hand. You know what I mean? Sure. He, he, he was uh, reliable. He turned his work in on time. That's You see him doing all these fill-ins. That usually means somebody else, you know. They know they can count on They him. know they can count on him to come in and, and, yeah. and you know, slip, slip one in there. So uh, it's too bad about, about uh, his early death. But anyway, for the uh, hook for this episode... Now, I want to make it clear that uh, neither Chris nor I have watched, nor do we intend to watch, <laughs> Netflix's The Defenders. But uh, clearly, the uh, team as seen on Netflix, which consists, like we said, of Daredevil, Iron Fist, Power Man, and Jessica Jones, slash Alias, which they never call her that on the show, I think, <laughs> resembles no iteration from the comics. Uh, I mean, actually, Iron Fist was on once, the team once, I believe. That was it. Yeah. Uh, we could talk about our problems with that, which would include that two people in the group already being teamed up as heroes for hire, so why it's not really a team. But uh, but instead, we thought we'd discuss other times where radio, television, and movies determined that changes had to be made to the source material when adapting comics properties. And for the first one, we're going to go all the way back to the early days of comics, where Jerry Siegel wrote an unpublished story in 1940 called The K-Metal from Krypton. It's not mm-hmm. known why National DC didn't publish this story, Though Schuster did do some pencils for it. It was uncovered from the DC archives in the late 1980s by Mark Wade. Now, the mineral known as kryptonite was introduced in the story arc The Meteor from Krypton in June 1943 on the Adventures of Superman radio series. Uh, Clayton Bud Collier, who played Superman Clark Kent, wanted to take a vacation from the series. Since radio shows had to be performed live at the time, Superman was placed in a kryptonite trap, and a stand-in groaned with pain for several episodes until (laughs) Collier came back from his vacation. Uh, Kryptonite was incorporated into the comic mythos with Superman number 61 in November 1949. 
Wow, necessity is the mother of invention. Sure, yeah. <laughs> uh, another another bit that was added to uh, classic comics history here is the Batcave. Originally, there was only a secret tunnel that ran underground between Wayne Manor and the dusty old barn where the Batmobile was kept. Later in Batman number 12, this August, September 1942, writer Bill Finger mentioned secret underground hangars. But nothing was illustrated. In 1943, the writers of the first Batman movie serial, called Batman, gave Batman Good a complete title. underground. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> uh, they would give Batman a complete underground crime lab, and introduced it in the second chapter entitled "The Bat's Cave." The entrance was via a secret passage through a grandfather clock and included bats flying around. Mm, sounds familiar, uh, yeah. Doesn't it? Now, Bob Kane, who was on the movie set, mentioned this to Bill Finger, who was uh, going to be the initial scripter on the Batman Daily newspaper strip. Uh, Finger included with his strip a clipping from Popular Mechanics that featured a detailed cross-section of underground hangars. Kane used this clipping as a guide, adding a study, crime lab, workshop, hangar, and garage. Kane, this... wink, wink, wink. Kane did it. You see, Kane <laughs> drew all that stuff, wink. Anyway. Uh, hell. <laughs> this, this illustration appeared in the Batman Daily Comic on October 29th, 1943, in a strip entitled The Batcave. Uh, the Batcave made its comic book debut in Detective Comics issue 83, its January 1944 cover, by Don Cameron and Jack Burnley. I find it funny that the Batcave began in 44, but Kryptonite didn't show up in the comics till 49. 49, yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, I wouldn't call that late in the run, but so many years, you know, 10 years after the debut. Sure. Anyway, we uh, talk about the weird uh, causes of the speed force can have on people. <laughs> For the uh, 1967 filmation cartoon Superman Aquaman Hour of Adventure, in the Flash segments, Wally West slash Kid Flash is depicted as having black and not red hair. No good reason was ever given for this color change, though the guy playing Barry Allen on the CW's The Flash television series has brown and not brown blonde hair. So maybe the Speed Force does something to hair? And, uh, maybe. I, for that Filmation one, too, uh, uh, Kid Flash's costume, where it is where we know it to be yellow, they made it red. And mm. where, they, where we know it to be red, they made it yellow. So maybe you think, well, maybe they didn't want to have, to have red hair right on top of a red costume. But why did you change the colors of the costume? There's no good reason. I just don't know. You know, there's no answer yeah. to these questions. Uh, related to this cartoon, though, the Teen Titans segments did not feature Robin. But that was probably because Robin was already appearing on the Batman television show produced by Bill Dozier. So we can explain that one. Yes. Now, uh, for the 1977 television show, The Incredible Hulk, starring Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno, produced That's the by same Kenneth... guy in a way. <laughs> yes, <laughs> produced by Kenneth Johnson. A uh, Doctor Bruce Banner's name is changed to Doctor David Bruce Banner. The character is referred to as David when applicable on the program. Now, the change was made according to Johnson because he did not want the series to be to be perceived as a comic book series. So he wanted to change Stanley's penchant for ha using alliterative names. Uh, according to both Stan Lee and Lou Ferrigno, it also it was also changed because CBS thought the name Bruce sounded too gay-ish. A rationale that Ferrigno said was the most absurd, ridiculous thing he'd ever heard. Uh, the show also made subtle changes to the Hulk's origin and occupation for spurious reasons. Yeah, it's like such slight weird changes. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, uh, and, well, go ahead. 
Oh, uh, Stan actually changed uh, his first name to Robert Bruce Banner because he forgot his name once. Yeah, <laughs> in the early days, he did that a lot. Yeah, Peter had yep. a different name to it one time. But, uh, you know, in, in the show, I can't remember exactly. The origin is like he's exposed to gamma rays in a laboratory, and they thought this somehow was less comic booky than gamma ray explosion. Explosion, yeah. The, the comic book part is that gamma rays turn you into a Hulk. That's the into comic book part, yes. folks. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, this is a lot more rational than it was happened over time. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so the Fantastic Four property was made into an animated series in 1978. That was actually the second uh, Fantastic Four cartoon to come out. The character of the Human Torch had been optioned separately for use in a solo movie, which never materialized. So needing a fourth member to round out the team, Stanley pitched the idea for a cute robot sidekick, and artist Dave Cochran was commissioned to dis- to design it. Uh, Cochran disliked the character so much, it was eventually replaced by Gak- <laughs> Jack Kirby. Enter Herbie, H-E-R-B-I-E, a robot created by Reed Richards, whose name looks like an acronym but doesn't seem to stand for anything. Uh, Herbie actually went right into the comics and has appeared many times. First appeared in the comics in Fantastic Four number 209. That was August 79 by Marv Wolfman and John Byrne. And then he subsequently subsequently appears in Fantastic Four Volume 1, 210 to 213, September through December 79. Numbers 215 to 217, February through April 1880. Number 242, May 1982 cover. And number 244, July 1982 cover. Also featured in Fantastic Four Heroes Reborn, number 3, March 1998. Also, Marvel Holiday Special from 2004, Exiles Issue 72 from January 2006, Fantastic Four Issue 534 from March 2006. There's also an X-Men number at 181, March 2006, and the Franklin Richards one-shot from April 2006 cover. Also, X-Men Runaways number one, May 2006, Sensational Spider-Man number 25, June 2006, Fantastic Four, A Death in the Family, July 2006. That was a heck of a year for Herbie in 2006. Uh, In fact, the key, it goes on, Franklin Richards' (laughs) Super Summer Spectacular, September 2006. And the following year, Franklin Richards' Happy Franksgiving, January 2007, Franklin Richards' Monster Mash, November 2007. And Herbie most recently appeared, as far as we know, Franklin Richards' fall football fiasco in January 2008. And it's usually people, when people talk about the Herbie replacing the Human Torch, it's, there's that urban legend where they were afraid kids would try to set themselves on fire. Right. That, that, <laughs> that is that is the legend. I think that that's a, came up from, you know, the rumor mill. Uh, yeah. It's pretty well recognized that they're... As debunked, yeah. To me, the legal option sounds like the more likely one, you know. The, the, it always the, is, Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the legal no. is. The last one we're going to talk about is in Sam Raimi's 2002 film Spider-Man, Peter Parker, who is being played by Tobey Maguire, generates and shoots webs from... Inside his wrist, instead of building web shooters as depicted in Amazing Fantasy 15 back in August 1962. Uh, of course, yeah, that was Spider-Man's first appearance. Yeah, to see. Now, uh, <laughs> Peter Parker in the comics followed suit after uh, I think it was the other storyline where he kind of he kind of crept into a cocoon and died and was reborn. Reborn as, it, as uh, Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, basically. Yes, basically. <laughs> uh, and actually, it was uh, one of the only things I really liked about uh, 
one more day was at the very end of it they all toast and you can see that peter's uh, web shooter is back on his wrist wow that's interesting when he toasts glasses so that was uh, one good thing to come out of that that's a that's a cool way to show it too that's sort of to let the reader know we're going back to basics although don't know if we could quite say that's what happened but uh yeah that's interesting you know it's funny uh i I think the ultimate doesn't miles morales also not use web shooters is is that a fiction i made up I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'll be honest, we couldn't tell you what's happening right now because I haven't looked at a Spider-Man comic in probably three years. So I, they all, for all I know, they could be shooting it out of their mouths and butts right this moment. I've, it's <laughs> very possible. I have yes. no idea how it works. <laughs> I do know there's about 500 Spider-Men and women yes. uh, patrolling Manhattan. So uh, One of them is bound to have the organic One of them weapon. probably has uh, spider <laughs> gunk coming out of their wrists and fingers. Uh, if you know... Or if you have any other great instances of, uh, you know, changes that were made from movies, television, radio that affected the comics. Or if you want to talk about the Netflix series, which we don't really want to talk about it. Or if you want to talk about the Defenders or this issue or anything yes. you want, please write to us at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cosmicteamill. We're on Twitter at cosmicteamill. And I'm on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. I'm at Ace Comics. We have our weekly writings and reviews over at WeirdScienceDCComics.com. And you got to read Chris's blog every day. Uh, hopefully we'll have an issue of Cops up there very soon. Uh, very soon. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. <laughs> uh, you know, you kind of have revealed a lot of your comics to the uh, to, to a life change right now. So I'm expecting, yes. <laughs> I'm expecting some uh, really weird DCs to come out of the... Uh, come out of the pack it's but it's in this in this time of transition for you it really has been a blog of transition hasn't it you you've you did earth 2 uh mm-hmm. from 2011 the other day and then i see you know bronze age and earlier 2000s you are just bouncing yes. back and forth so everything uh, that was on top of the pile is now on the bottom and everything that was on the bottom is now on the top that's exactly so what i was imagining <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah you were like here's one way to get through my stack you know so uh exactly. it's awesome you, you got to check it out it's got he's got great reviews he has had a lot of pictures uh great you know he, the beginning is just a description then he goes through a very you know chris goes through detailed uh his opinions about the story and i'm telling you, you you're not you're missing out if you're not looking at it plus he has ads it's it's the place to be. <laughs> now uh, we also have our uh, our own uh, show uh, site here. It's weirdcomicshistory.blogspot.com, which uh, I think I'm I think I'm a show behind on updating. But it's uh, where we keep our show notes. And uh, I think we mentioned last week that uh, you know if you guys want us to do some uh, scripts or. Include yeah. any of our process, definitely let us know, and we'd be more than happy to share some of that with you. Sure. Um, before we go, we definitely want to thank Joe Crawford again for the suggestion and also for his support. Uh, Absolutely, he's yeah. been a great friend to the show. He's a great friend to the show. If you like comics, you're on the comics internet, this is definitely a fella you want to uh, follow, follow what he's doing because it's, he's not obtrusive, but he just has a, a genuine love for comics of all oh, kinds. Oh, yeah, you can feel it. Of yep. all kinds. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I look at what I look at his reading list on his Tumblr sometimes, and I'm like, wow, he went. And there. also manga, everything. I mean, you know, I this is a, a fellow who really appreciates the comics form, and he's not trying to pimp that appreciation like we do into a podcast. So we gotta, <laughs> we love that. Uh, yeah, he's he's terrific. You gotta, you gotta go look him up. Go check out that Tumblr site, uh, flarejoe.tumblr.com. But I think that's all we got for him this week, Chris. You got anything else for him? I think that'll do it. 
Well, until next time, folks, I want you to keep it on the treadmill defensively. I hit a beat of swinging orders if my name was David Ruffin. Quick to toast an MC just like an English muffin. Don't worry about a thing because the food was never bluffing. I could hit from the whack. So then I take a buffin and I max. I wait until the opportune time and then I tax. But shit, I max. Panics and sinning is the sinner, so I guess I'm not a sinner. Beginners for beginners, so I guess I'm no beginner. This is how I spark it. Put money in my pocket. When it comes to having pleasure, I get hard as a rocket. MC Grand Pool coming through all the residue. The songs remain classic, dating back to the Babaloo. My boys, I call them pop. The phone's out of them jockin', I can think of many episodes I sprung a Lincoln Park. No, I'm not a phony, and I got a tenderoni. Love the way she is, not too fat, not too bony. Don't drink sink, I won't sink like a tanker. Knock the boots off a certain Casablanca, and I thank her. Some for stink, like Engelbert Humperdinck. Better yet, Dick Cabot, I got a bad habit. Similar to the girl, when she's got a habit. I think with the brain, and I wish behind a zipper. I'm living kind of good, similar to Jack Tripper. A landlord named Roper did a show at the Copa. When I'm finished with this, I'll be paid like Oprah. So if honey wants to act fly, I'll just play like God and I'm Stick out your thumb and hits Cause you've been cut off like a light switch See I'm programmed to slam with the summer, spring, or fall Before I do a show I get some kicks out the mall Then I get my gear and I give Trevor a call Cause he works in the barbershop right behind the mall Other rappers caught around me but you know they got dead To put it blunt, honey I shrunk the kids So book is back off, break north, here comes the regulator Bet you that's a fine night. 